Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking science and society, postgrads, a policy exchange report and student accommodation in Scotland. It's all coming up. Got a system and a, and a way that the student accommodation market works where um, much of the marketing and the encouragement to sign up for student accommodation is done months and months in advance, in some cases uh, November and December of the year before. So uh, students have signed up to uh, accommodation contracts um, for an academic year, nine months in, uh, or so in advance. And uh, so, uh, you know, for many of uh, students now, plans are going to change. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joined by three brilliant guests this morning to help us wade through the policy fjords. Uh, in London, we have David Malcolm, Head of Policy for the National Union of Students. David, uh, reason for optimism this week? Well, I've been working at home like everyone else, and uh, my window looks out onto a hedge, and I've got some sparrows nesting in the hedge, and it's been very soothing uh, watching them sort of bounce in and out um, with bits of twigs and food and all sorts of other things in their mouths, and uh, it's just nice to know that life continues as normal for at least some creatures in, on this earth. Uh, and in Glasgow, we have Rachel Sanderson, Vice Principal External Relations for the University of Glasgow. Rachel, tell us a highlight of the week, please. Oh, wow. Um, so many, actually. The sun is shining in Glasgow and has been now for weeks, uh, which is quite a revelation. Um, also, I'm a new auntie. So my sister oh, gave birth to a baby boy. Yes, so my wee nephew, Sonny, has arrived, which is a, a huge reason to be cheerful and optimistic. Um, and on a slightly different note, I did find out yesterday that my favourite pizza restaurant in Glasgow is reopening this weekend for uh, takeaway and delivery, which has brought me um, <laughs> complete and utter joy. So yes, lots of reasons to be cheerful. And also in London, uh, we have Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, tell us something that's cheered you up this week. Uh, well, in the continuation of the animal theme, uh, our little kittens have, have cheered me up this week because they've been super cute and they're coming and sitting on, on my lap. And that's just been lovely. Right. It's 20 years since the Inferential Science and Society report was published. Debbie, tell us, why did it matter? Uh, and why are we talking about it on Wonky so much this week? Well, uh, we've, we can all agree that uh, COVID-19 has, has created a, an, an opportunity kind of amid the gloom to showcase the best of UK science and research. But in the past couple of weeks, there's been a series of controversies uh, about scientific advice and how it works to shape government policy. So we've had the resignation of Neil Ferguson from the Scientific Advisory Group on Emergencies, or SAGE, as we'll call it from now on, um, because of because he was found to have broken the lockdown rules. Um, we've had questions over secrecy of membership of SAGE. And then when the membership list was published uh, last week, there was questions about whether it was sufficiently independent of government um, and whether it covered a broad enough range of expertise. Um, and in the wake of that, we've had the creation of a new shadow group in calling itself Independent SAGE, which has been created under the auspices of uh, former Chief Scientific Advisor Sir David King. And that group's been particularly critical of how government has been engaging with, with science and uh, and has sort of questioned uh, what's, what, how, you know, how the government is, is presenting science in its in its press conferences and communications. Um, and then the latest is that there's been further challenge over the government's uh, research sustainability task force and the transparency of the membership on that. So that was that was published 
published uh, just yesterday. Um, and I think all of these instances open up a debate about the role of science in policymaking, about questions of transparency and accountability, about not just how science informs policy, but how the public has input into scientific priorities um, and how the public sort of engages with science in a meaningful way. And um, it's something we'd, we'd been working on before before COVID-19 hit. Uh, 20 years ago, the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee uh, published a report, which was not groundbreaking in the sense that it was sort of picking up on, I think, uh, sort of trends trends in the discipline anyway around around questions about science's engagement with the public, but um, it was certainly uh, certainly noteworthy because it was it was a kind of a, a spark for for quite a lot of, of activity and, and that report basically recommended a shift from the dominant model of public understanding of science, which kind of called to mind this idea of kind of expert scientists you know declaiming from on high to a, to a grateful and, and, and ill-informed public and that sort of became known as the deficit model of, of public engagement um, to proposing a more democratic model in which uh, the public uh, uh, sort of users of science uh, funders of science um, and uh, scientific institutions uh, would would be kind of co-producing science in a more in a, in a much more democratic way and that that became known as the model of public engagement in science um so we were as i said we were working on this before covid-19 hit covid-19 um and and some of the issues that i've just described really brought these questions about public trust in science about the role of science in uh, shaping government policy into sharp relief so we've convened some really useful thinking on these topics which i won't go into in detail um, but i but i strongly commend to our listeners thanks Abby. and and Rachel you you work for a major uh, research intensive university and it feels like science is having a real moment right now and I'm interested to know um, how that's filtering through your university community at, at uh, during the crisis. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think, um, you know, we, we felt a little bit battered, I think, uh, across the higher education sector for a number of years now in this kind of revolt against the academy and experts. And it does feel like the pandemic is giving us an opportunity to really showcase the importance of research within the higher education sector and the very direct societal impact that can have. Um, at Glasgow, we are actually hosting the National um, Testing Centre for Scotland, the, the Lighthouse Lab, which has just been utterly tremendous. And we have over 800 volunteers from across our university community that are um, literally testing 24-7 in that lab. Um, so I do think that this does provide an opportunity for us to pivot a little and really shine a spotlight on the incredible, incredible research activity that universities deliver on behalf of society. And, and we are very much on the front line of the fight against COVID-19. I wonder if, if any of you, I mean, we, we've been talking about this in, in Wonky the last few days, but you know, science, science is never non-political and there's a lot of row over, uh, a, a lot of controversy over membership of these different groups. So we've got the first of all stage, then the, the sort of, uh, the sort of opposition stage, and then now the, um, the government's research task force. Um, they all seem, they all seem inherently political in their, um, both in their kind of makeup and also their purpose. Um, yeah, well, I, th I, I was really interested to um, listen to the Independent Sage press conference this week because uh, that, that, you know, that very question about the political affiliation of the group, and it's sort of known that the, the political affiliation of the group is more towards the left than perhaps uh, would be considered mainstream. And this this question was put to Sir David King by a journalist from the Daily Mail, and uh, Sir David King said this this is completely irrelevant. It is, you know, it, we, of course we didn't look at political affiliations when assembling uh, this group, and you know, can, can I ask you please to focus on the science and, and not on um, sort of inanities, basically? <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, I, I think there's a question here about, um, is it reasonable to expect scientists 
in you know in any context to put aside their political affiliations because if you if you consider that political affiliations do represent values and um and kind of perspectives on the world you know is, is it reasonable to expect them to put that aside in thinking about how they uh, produce science uh, draw on science to formulate advice to government um i i would argue no but at the same time i'm sort of wary of a model that says we must publish the, the affiliations of everyone who, uh, who you know, who, who takes on these sorts of rules, partly because of the, the risk to the individuals involved, and partly because I think it does people a disservice to some extent to suggest that, that they can, you know, that they can't take a view that is, if not necessarily independent of their politics, that that is, that they can be sort of sufficiently conscious of their own politics to be mindful of what the implications of that might be for how they're presenting information. But I can also see <laughs> that that would be uh, very much hedging it for, for a lot of people who would feel that kind of transparent and accountability are very much compromised by, by such a view. I wonder if anyone's got a view about what, what we should be asking of the government's new research task force. So the, the, again, another thing, the membership was kept secret and it's just been revealed in the last 24 hours to include um, sector figures, vice-chancellors um, and um, the, the relevant ministers in, the, in, in, in Scotland and Wales. I, I think part of the issue, of course, is that trust in politicians is really low. And when they're seen to be involved in uh, either interpreting or enacting uh, scientific advice, uh, I think it can accept uh, perceptions. And, you know, you can witness the concern about the idea that Dominic Cummings was attending the meetings of uh, Original Sage as uh, people being concerned that if he was involved as a Svengali figure, that what would come out of that would necessarily be sort of tainted or uh, or, or sort of pulled towards the, the what the government needs the scientific advice to say in order to, to, uh, to make itself look good. And uh, so I think any time that, you know, because it's trust in politicians, it's that sort of fear that uh, it's so low, it's that fear that the then that that will kind of uh, affect the trust in science um, and the scientific advice. And again, you can sort of see that across the pond in America where, uh, you know, Trump and uh, Anthony Fauci are, are sort of this strange double act every time there's a press conference. Um, and uh, it, it's only by Trump's sort of egregiousness um, and in terms of uh, making up scientific theories um, as he stands there that, uh, that you know, the, the, the trust remains, I think, in uh, Dr. Fauci to, to be giving good advice to the American public. Um, but I think it can also be kind of overdone in terms of the, 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 the chatter in the newspapers. Um, there was a surveillance poll last week that said that 64% of people um, agreed that they trusted science scientists more now um, uh, as a result of the crisis. Um, but equally, I think the point that Debbie was making about the value that people place in transparency is definitely there. 97% in the same poll said that the data should be public uh, so that the, uh, you know, the public do want to be engaged in what's going on and understand uh, why the scientific advice is what it is. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, wonky listeners. Uh, my name's Victoria Holbrook and I'm the Assistant Director for Governance at Advance HG. My piece this week is about valuing diversity in governance, and it has been on my mind for quite some time. We all know that board diversity needs to improve further, but the reason that this is so important now is because we're going through such major change. We need the brightest minds from all backgrounds and perspectives to help us determine our new strategies. And the crux of it is this, who gets to inform and make decisions matters, and it really matters now more than ever. It's about avoiding blind spots, it's about innovating, but it's also about stakeholder engagement, confidence and trust. So I'm making the case that board diversity needs to be addressed right now if we're to come out of this stronger. And I propose some ways that this could be done. So I hope you enjoyed it. 
Hi, I'm Holly Baker. I'm the Deputy Head of Wine and Participation and Outreach at the University of Surrey. Um, I've written a quick piece about the implications of school closures for disadvantaged students, um, not only those hoping to enter higher education this year, but also the knock-on effect that it will have on students for years to come. Um, firstly, it explores the measures that have, put in, have been put in place to assess students um, this year to avoid the risks associated with predicted grades um, and the reality that actually under predicting grades is just one component that um, of our education system that disadvantages already disadvantaged students. There are so many other things that have happened up to this point um, already that, that aren't kind of being considered, I suppose. Um, it looks at the education disadvantage gap, um, currently on average around 18 months, and how this period of homeschooling is likely to increase this gap. Um, and also what um, it means that students don't have opportunities to access IAG cultural cap um, and, to, and to develop cultural capital. Um, and how this is likely actually to continue when schools go back as well. Um, and then finally, it looks at opportunities that we as WP teams, as Uniconnect Partnerships, um, should be focusing on at this point um, and how we can make the most of this, this period where students are at home with their families, um, particularly students that are disadvantaged, and how we can try and ensure that learning is happening as a family and together, um, which hopefully will be more impactful um, and more meaningful for the future as well. Now, this week, HEPI's published a major report into the state of postgraduate education in the UK. Rachel, what are your key takeaways from this? Yeah, so new report from HEPI published today, um, which does explore the state of postgraduate education over the past decade. And it builds on the two earlier reports HEPI released in 2004 and 2010. Um, and I think what it really highlights is a, um, a period of extreme turmoil in postgraduate numbers over the past decade with both positive and negative outcomes. But I think it's worthwhile remembering that this is a decade where we have face the 2008 financial crises, the change to student funding, removal of the post-study work visa, um, and of course Brexit, which we, we haven't been talking as much about of late, but of course is, is still there on the horizon. Um, I think all of that being said, actually, the report is uh, fairly positive in its conclusion that overall there has been a 16% growth in postgraduate study and particularly a marked growth in international student numbers uh, studying in the UK, um, mainly thanks to Chinese students who are coming for postgraduate study at our universities. So other key headlines that have come out of this report is that um, perhaps unsurprisingly, the introduction of postgraduate loans for study at master's level has led to a marked increase in UK domicile student numbers following several years of decline or stagnation. Um, but there has been a significant decline in numbers of older part-time students accessing lifelong learning. Um, and of course, a decline in EU domicile students from 2016 as a result of Brexit. Um, there has been some interesting research as well around the growing imbalance between female and male postgraduates. Um, and also the fact that TNE has grown significantly over that period. So we now have more international postgraduates studying for UK postgraduate programmes uh, overseas than we do in the UK. In fact, TNE students have more than doubled since 2007-2008. The one last thing actually that I would pick up from the report is just that um, master's loans have really improved participation amongst students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and I, I found this particularly pleasing that students from disadvantaged backgrounds now make up 49% of the cohort. And that's actually up from 35% in 2008-2009. David, um, to, to tell us about um, the WP agenda um, and postgrads. I think obviously it's uh, something that when the postgraduate loans are being discussed was uh, a, a hot topic was that, you know, the, the idea that postgraduate study and particularly top masters was the new frontier in widening participation that uh, it, it, because uh, only the kind of better off students could access it, that it was, uh, you know, replicating the, the, the issues and the uh, disparities between different social 
groups uh, uh, just by instead of at the undergraduate level where it was previously now uh, extending that to postgraduate level. So uh, the, the the absolute uh, you know the, it was absolutely the. Uh, right intention, I think, to um, open up postgraduate study and make sure that those uh, students who couldn't afford to pay this out of their own pockets or their uh, family finances, that they could get access to this. But I do have some concerns around that. Um, and I think that the, the loans have opened up that uh, access, is, there's, there's no question. But the repayment conditions um, are designed to ensure that loans are cost neutral to um, the public purse. Um, and that's quite a, con a, a significant consideration in terms of when you go out uh, into the workplace afterwards, the, the, the kind of uh, cost of that to you. Um, and especially Actually, then, if you choose to then go on to do doctoral study and you're, you're taking a further loan on top of that uh, to, uh, to to pay for that study, and uh, it's not, of course, that loans are the only way you fund this, or indeed family. Um, what is also notable to me, I think, is that um, over the period there's been a significant decline in the funding from employers to do uh, this sort of study, um, and this is sort of uh, uh, this is something we've already seen uh, with uh, the extension of loans for part-time undergraduate study and the analysis that was done by uh, individuals like Claire Callender and others uh, showed that um, that was a result of um, a combination of uh, uh, reduced training budgets by employers, um, an increase in fees that meant that they were less willing to stump up the cash when they did have the budget, uh, and of course them saying, that, well, if you've got loans, you don't need um, that sponsorship anymore. Um, but what I worry about that is that uh, the people that continue to get employer sponsorship and therefore don't pay for this are going to be those who are uh, in better off uh, situations from, from better off social backgrounds. Um, and, and similarly, um, the in doctoral study, you know, those who can access the research council studentships, which mean that you don't pay fees and you get some money uh, for your maintenance. Again, uh, I would uh, be quite confident there are some biases there. And again, it will be students from better off backgrounds, um, from, from sort of demographics who, uh, you know, we, we know have uh, some of the, the advantages in society who will get those studentships more likely um, and uh, whereas again poorer students and others um, have to rely on loans so I do worry that the introduction of the loans that we have to be very careful um, that it doesn't actually in some ways exacerbate some of the uh, inequalities that it's actually trying to address. Yeah there's you've almost got to be a bit careful when you're talking about uh, part data on, on uh, socioeconomic background of postgraduates because it's one of those data things that's incredibly hard to measure but there does seem to be some indication that introducing the loan has led to increase of participation among the, the, the most disadvantaged groups and, and kind of polar is um, and socioeconomic classification are the kind of two ways that you, you can try and at least get a snapshot of that but it also seems to have increased participation by perhaps a greater amount among the most advantaged so there's a question I think about the um, you know when you're when you're thinking about whether to do postgraduate you're obviously you know there's a kind of question about the sort of interest in the subject and stuff like that but I think in some ways it's a more um, it's a more kind of classically rational question about you know is is this worth the investment uh, for a student thinking about whether to do it and that's what that's why I think one thing that's quite interesting about this report is this question about different groups that get a better return on investment because if you think about I mean what we know from um, longitudinal educational outcomes is the salary differentials um, vary enormously by not only things like region and university of study, but also gender, um, uh, social class, th those sorts of things. And though, you know, though I hear what you're saying, David, about the kind of concerns um, about the kind of the, re the replication of existing inequalities, I, d I do wonder whether um, in the same way as the payoff for women in terms of the salary outcome in particular is greater because women are more disadvantaged in the labour market overall may also be true for disadvantaged students, which is not necessarily to say that, you know, it, it, it is, of course, f fundamentally unfair that, that, you know, women and or disadvantaged students and or other kind of less advantaged groups would need to invest in a postgraduate in order to be, um, you know, to, to, to secure that advantage. 
but it certainly, I think, needs to be formed part of the calculation. And I would, I would agree with that, Debbie. And I think that the report does try to call some of that out. And in fact, you know, the growing imbalance between female and male postgraduates, which stand at sort of sixty to forty respectively, and um, that's partly due to the fact that there is much higher female participation in teaching and nursing. Um, so those particular areas. So it might not necessarily be that um, women in PG has grown overall. It's just that women in particular programs has grown as a result of those professional pathways being required to get graduate employment. Um, and I think there is an issue around the um, salary piece in particular. So although it's, it says that um, postgraduate study benefits women more, it's because of the lower salary thresholds in the first place that it's actually, it's it's a very complicated picture. I think you've always got to um, look at all of this data and, and apply some context to it. That's also true of, um, of BAME participation, isn't it? Because there's some indication that um, particularly uh, Black Caribbean um, British people might may be actually slightly overrepresented at postgraduate study, and, and certainly I know that the Times this morning led with kind of fewer white men in, in postgraduate study, and I think that that becomes a problem if you are confident that every form of postgraduate study confers a social advantage. And of course, you know, if we're talking about more postgraduate nursing, um, initial teacher training, you know, these are absolutely fantastic pathways, but they are also kind of requirements to to enter the field and. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, we, we have to kind of look at particular segments of postgraduate study and, and the kind of patterns there, as well as looking at the overall picture. I think one of the other things that's really interesting that the report calls out quite starkly is um, the growth being buoyed by uh, international students and, of course, international students from China in particular, which make up 38% of the postgraduate cohort. Um, and actually, you know, the, the report does flag that, of course, this, this was analysis that was done pre-COVID-19. And actually, what will the next few years look like for the sector um, as a result of the impact of the pandemic and student choice around travel and still uh, coming to the UK for uh, international education. That seems to me the, the, the critical question. And, and, and in the context of uh, what we're likely to see a, a global recession, if not a depression, um, what is that likely to do to demand, Debbie? Uh, well, I mean, the report, the, the data in the report was, was created, uh, it was was brought together before before COVID nineteen hit, but the author uh, Ginevra House does speculate that well, you know, we're almost certainly going to see a severe dip in um, international postgraduate study. Although the, the the transnational provision, um, some forms of that may may be able to continue, and, and there's a potential um, ray, ray of light there. Uh, but actually, the suspicion is is that home postgraduate demand may increase as a result. Of, um, of of bad economic circumstances. Um, certainly, that was I think modestly true um, at the last financial crisis. And it, it, I mean, one one shouldn't probably be too cheerful about that because, of course, you you know, if people are doing postgraduate study. You hope that it's because um, of the kind of uh, you know positive calculation about, about about the benefit to them and the value for them. But um, that you know that 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 could be a feature of of the of the year to come. Yeah, and I think also you know assuming EU students have to pay international fees after a Brexit transition period, um, it is predicted that numbers may decline by sixty percent. So that's over eleven thousand fewer EU students studying at our universities. Um, and you know that in some ways, you know, if you're just looking plainly at the economics, some universities may say, well, okay, that's fine on the basis that we still have a very healthy number of fee-paying international students from other parts of the world. But there is just no certainty that that will now be the case. And, you know, predictions by Simon Marginson and others are saying that, you know, the impact of COVID-19 will be felt by the higher education sector for a, a five-year period. Um, so we, we need to be really realistic about what international growth is going to look like. And actually now how realistic the government's international uh, strategy is, I, I think not very unless the government actually really works closely with the sector 
to ensure we have the right policies in place to support international growth. And, you know, we, we need to be able to move on post-study work being uh, reintroduced. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're getting lots of positive noises that this will happen over the summer, but it actually hasn't yet. And we need to get those messages out to the marketplace. Um, but we also need to look at, at prioritising international immigration post-COVID-19 in the way that the Australian sector now has. And, and that will require government support to make happen. And I think that even for domestic student recruitment, uh, whilst I would agree in any normal uh, recession, as it were, you would expect to see a, an increase in demand for education, uh, given the option of that or unemployment. But uh, I think this is not a normal re- recession and some of the same calculations um, for postgraduate study will surely apply uh, for all the things we've been discussing as regards undergraduate study. So do people feel they'll get the quality of education that they would want um, in a scenario where they're not sure if they'll be able to attend the campus um, and they're not certain about uh, the, the whether online education is the right thing for them? So uh, I, that I think will, will, will need to be a consideration or, or, or certainly might dampen some of that demand that otherwise would, would, uh, would arrive. All lockdown, we're running Wonky at Home, a series of online events exploring different aspects of higher education policy in the COVID landscape and presenting new thinking about how we get out of the crisis and what happens next. Go to wonky.com slash events to find out more and book your place. Now, Policy Exchange has published a new report from David Goodhart uh, on how the crisis uh, presents an opportunity for government to reshape the education landscape. David, uh, what's your take? Well, I think the Wonk community tends to look uh, quite closely at anything that policy exchange says um, uh, at the moment because, uh, of course, uh, one of Gavin Williamson's special advisors, Ian Mansfield, was their head of education uh, immediately prior to him taking up uh, that role. And uh, this isn't one of his reports, to be clear. Um, this is from David Goodhart, uh, the author um, of The Road to Somewhere. So uh, it was you know, quite notable a few years back when um, assessing uh, what was happening around Brexit um, and sort of uh, how the country's uh, political divides have changed um, in, in his framing from uh, those are people of somewhere and those are people of anywhere. And um, he's so actually quite a blue Labour figure, so he's also been sort of influential in, in that um, debate um, within uh, the, the opposition party. And um, so he's written this report that's, uh, about saying there's an opportunity here to uh, use the crisis to address some of the problems he um, perceives in the UK's uh, training and education um, at sort of tertiary level. Um, and I think if you wanted to be slightly jaundiced about it. Well, when I was reading the report earlier this week, my, my first thought was that you know the opening um, sort of introduction uh, and, and first few paragraphs is really just in a, a Telegraph article. Um, I thought, um, and although it turned out it was a Spectator article because that's been published this morning. Um, and uh, you know, if you want to play um, uh, HE article bingo, then you can um, you know circle the references to um, Germany's vocational education system. You can uh, tick off uh, referring to further education as the Cinderella sector. There's a disparaging mention of the 50% target. Um, etc. So, to some extent, it, you know, although it's a, a, a think tank report, it doesn't come across as, as, as um, you know, delivering any uh, particularly new analysis. Um, but then you get to the ideas, um, and he's got three ideas um, for what should happen to uh, uh, training uh, in uh, the UK, and he believes that two can be done relatively simply, and one is a bit more medium term. Um, so the first is an opportunity grant. He, he says that um, all adults should be given um, £3,000 um, uh, in grant form uh, with uh, top-up loans for f- uh, uh, more expensive uh, study. And it's basically going to be available to all individuals um, and enable them to take up um, uh, courses broadly in further education, um, although he sort of hints that some uh, sort of higher education might be possible around this. Um, 
And uh, it's a sort of a variation on um, the proposals in the OG report for a lifelong learning loan, um, similarly the LibDem Lifelong Learning Commission's uh, recommendations for a, a new form of, of uh, individual learning account, um, although more of this in grant form than either of those two reports um, suggested. And um, uh, and indeed, at NUS, we've been suggesting something very similar for study leavers um, coming out into the to, to the coronavirus world um, in uh, the next few months. Um, uh, uh, but I think uh, it, whilst it's uh, a good idea on the whole um, and you need to guard against the abuses he mentions that uh, was a feature of the system of um, individual learning accounts that was introduced in the early 2000s, um, I think that obviously there are some barriers in creating um, the capacity um, at speed um, if everyone were to take this up. Um, and there's no mention, as is often the case with these uh, sorts of proposals, of how students are meant to uh, have you know support their living and course costs um, during study. Um, the second uh, proposal he comes up with is a new model of apprenticeship uh, education. Um, he wants to uh, completely replace the current apprenticeship model, uh, and this is all in England, by the way, um, with what he calls a radically simplified model, um, where the government funds 50% of apprentices and employers fund the other 50%, but directed solely at school leavers up to the age of 24. Um, and I think it's quite ambitious to say that that's a simple solution, that you just replace the entire apprenticeship system overnight. Um, and regardless of the merit of uh, the um, uh, ideas anyway, the, the employers at the moment, you know, what we're getting through at NUS is uh, some sense that uh, the, the employers just aren't offering apprentices at the moment. New starts have slumped, um, uh, and employers, because of all the challenges they face, aren't wanting to start new apprentice programs. Um, uh, so I, I think, again, uh, regardless uh, so of whether or not the, we have the right system at the moment, um, the, the problems it's facing aren't, aren't necessarily going to be solved by that approach. Um, and finally, and perhaps most uh, of interest to the higher education sector, he proposes a slightly more medium-term uh, initiative of creating new applied universities, which are essentially the return of polytechnics, um, saying there's a condition for any post-crisis support for um, higher education. Government should insist that other than the, the sort of elite academic institutions, um, that uh, the you know a, a number of institutions should shift their missions um, to uh, be uh, more like the old kind of Woolwich speech style polytechnic of uh, a range of applied learning courses um, aimed at uh, more mature students, uh, people who don't move away to study, uh, offer more um, sort of short courses or, or um, condensed courses, um, or part-time courses, sandwich courses, etc., etc. Um, and he basically says, that, you know, we should move to more, towards um, the U.S. community college model. Um, and again, it's an interesting proposal in that, uh, you know, I, there are uh, obviously an, uh, there's a need to make sure that we are um, uh, offering the right sort of set of programmes for um, a very diverse society and diverse student group. Um, and the, um, the, the, the three-year full-time undergraduate move away from home model is not the only one offered. Um, but it's a sort of, again, it's a, it's a huge um, uh, suggestion to move uh, to everyone um, to this this model. Um, and he sort of seems very ambivalent. At the one level, he sort of says that there's not enough academic rigour um, in institutions outside of the academic elite, but then wants to move every single vocational subject in, into these apparently not very rigorous universities. Um, so th th there's some sort of, uh, you know, he he's got ambivalence around around this uh, approach. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the real fundamental issue is the, the, the risk that we just recreate the binary divide. There was a reason that that was uh, removed and that, that there was, uh, you know, a, a disparity in funding uh, between uh, the uh, traditional academic universities and the polytechnics. There was differences in prestige uh, and again, in a, in a context where uh, this government has been very uh, clear about student choice driving um, how higher education works, um, the, the idea is sort of basically saying students aren't making the right choices and we need to make those choices for them or, uh, as he puts it, sort of slightly restrict the choices at HE level um, uh, to, to, to get the, the, the right outcomes. Um, so uh, there's lots in here.
year um, and um, lots that um, probably going to make the sector quite nervous. One of the things uh, that jumped out at me was his suggestion of um, of selective and conditional bailouts um, uh, to, to respond to COVID, to to, uh, to to create these applied universities and um, undo the, the the binary divide, as he as he talks about. And Debbie, the you know policy exchange reports are read in government and they are influential. Um, I mean, do you think this uh, this this will carry any weight? Well, I think like everything, this these these ideas influence government, but they are also influenced by what is perceived to be the mood in government. So it's you know the tra- the, tra- the traffic is, is two way. Um, certainly, some of these ideas speak to themes. You know that we're all very familiar with from the Augur review. Um, the need to boost level four and five. The need to have more kind of seamless sequencing uh, between further and higher education, and and you know, and and the, and the perceived need to kind of tackle the the, the perennial problem of low value degrees, though the specific courses are so rarely actually identified and, and called out. Um, I think. I think the thing about the thing about Guthar, and I think this, I think this does probably reflect some some thinking in government, despite the best efforts of universities, is that he's just really, really comfortable with the existing hierarchy of of subjects and uh, and universities, and and he sort of sees the, you know, and and he, and he sees that as sort of fixed and correct, and uh, and and he's you know, and he's clearly and he's clearly quite comfortable with the distinction between academic and vocational, except when it comes to <laughs> uh, medicine, engineering, law, um, which he which he considers to be, to be, to be higher vocational, um, and I think. Um, from the government's perspective, uh, if the question is how do we achieve our objectives with the sort of min- with the minimum level of of effort, disruption, and, and and resource, which is always you know should always be the question when you're making um, policy choices, you know, because you know there's no point in disrupting unnecessarily. Um, I think a lot of these goals could probably be achieved using policy levers that. Um, that does already exist, you know, funding funding policy levers, perhaps you know, selective student number controls, without having to create a thing called an applied university. I, suspect, I mean, that's just a sort of branding question, isn't it? Um, and so, I don't imagine that the kind of you know, we'll sort of see a universal uh, relegation of of particular kinds of university, which you know, which which do deliver very high quality education, as we know, um, across the academic and vocational. If you if you accept that divide, um, the exception, of course, is when. If in the circumstances, if a university did get into financial trouble, and of course the government has no control over whether that those universities are specialist universities, uh, you know, big civic universities, research intensive universities. So in some cases, it may then be possible to say, right, well, we need you to do more with the local FE college or or whatever it is as a condition of bailout. But um, unless you're planning a sort of wholesale reform of the sector and and being interventionist, um, then you've got very little control over exactly exactly how and how and where that happens. And and Rachel, how um how how do these ideas play out in in Scotland, where the the landscape looks looks rather different when it comes to um, uh, these themes? Indeed, and I've I've got to be honest, I did let out a little sigh when I read the paper. Um, I, I absolutely agree with the maxim: never waste a good crisis. And I think um, I I think absolutely there is an expectation that there may be some sectoral reform as a result of the pandemic. Um, however, I, I'm not sure this is it. And certainly in Scotland, um, we have already had widespread reform of the FE college sector in particular with the merger of numbers of colleges across uh, Scotland to create kind of super colleges that would have very clear articulation pathways with um, HEIs. I mean, I, I do think that the notion of applied courses just seems a little dated to me. And it does give this um, impression that universities are not focused on real world problems and providing skills for society. And, and I think I think that's untrue and a little bit unfair. Um, 
I also think when I was reading through the paper, it kind of gave rise to more questions than it, than it provided answers for. Um, you know, when we talk about the Industrial Revolution 4.0, um, we, we need to be training uh, people for jobs that don't yet exist. So how would any HE provider be able to manage that? Um, I also wasn't really clear. I mean, the report acknowledges that some sectors could shrink and others would gallop ahead. Great. Um, But is the training that would be provided to support the galloping sectors or to rebuild the failing ones? Um, I I wasn't really quite sure. Um, It seemed to me that the the paper itself was full of of some contradiction. And, you know, it it referenced low value degrees, but it didn't really call those out in a clear way. So I'm also not quite sure what low value degrees are. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think I think there are definitely some challenges with with the proposals that are being put forward. Of course, you know, the, the training or retraining grant of £3,000 would also be used up very quickly, I think. I'm, I'm not sure where that would come from or what it would be expected to cover and how employment relevant it would be um, and how that could be potentially determined. One of the interesting things actually in Scotland of late is that the Scottish Funding Council have just invested in micro-credentials across the sector. So uh, the University of Glasgow is one of many universities that want to bid um, for investment from the SFC to host um, 10-week online micro-credential programmes that would give uh, 10 credits. So it would be credits that could be built towards degree study. And these are all focused on upskilling. So you know, ones that we have are around um, you know, leading change, leadership in health management care, uh, absolutely programmes that are linked in to uh, particular sectors sectors and career pathways. And actually, that might be something that we see much more of in the sector over the years to come. I'm JC Clewer, a partner at EY. I've recently contributed to a pop-up think tank called Our Other National Debt, which brings together policy proposals for sectors which have contributed the most to the national effort over recent months. My essay is called We Haven't Had Enough of Experts, and in it I argue that expertise has had a really rough ride over the last few years. But COVID has shone a light on the amazing science going on. And it's really shown the public the value to society of those people who toil away in labs analysing data to push human knowledge and understanding just that little bit further. And I believe we can use this moment to make the case for expertise more broadly in society and what I call the expertise infrastructure that underpins it, so universities, research institutes. Next up. The coronavirus bill in Scotland has some measures around student accommodation that are look, being looked at very closely, I think, across the UK. Rachel, can you, can you talk us through what it does? Yes, so um, the Scottish Accommodation Bill, uh, basically notice periods for student accommodation in Scotland are to be introduced as part of emergency coronavirus legislation to be lodged at the Scottish Parliament this week. Um, in essence, what that means is that students currently tied to a contract in halls of residence or other purpose-built student accommodation would be able to give seven days notice before ending their lease. Subject to Parliament's approval of the legislation, uh, new agreements entered into by students whilst the law is in force will also have a 28-day notice period to leave as well. So students won't be held liable for accommodation they cannot use as a result of the pandemic and lockdown. David, what can we learn from this approach for the rest of the UK? As you can imagine, I think uh, students uh, in other parts of the UK are looking very closely at the provisions in Scotland and wanting to replicate them uh, elsewhere. Uh, in Scotland, it's sort of closing a, a gap in the legislation, if you like, um, in the, those students in the private rented sector, shared houses, shared flats, um, already um, can uh, 
uh, give that notice and uh, be releasing the contracts with uh, 28 days notice, which uh, and that's true of, of, of all um, of that type of accommodation in Scotland, not just students. Uh, whereas that's not true um, at all in England, Wales or Northern Ireland. And uh, so it will be a bigger shift in a way, um, a, a, a bigger concession of principle uh, for that to be introduced in other parts of the UK. But I think it's very much something that students are looking very closely at, partly because um, we've got a system and a, and a way that the student accommodation market works where um, much of the marketing and the encouragement to sign up for student accommodation is done months and months in advance, in some cases, uh, November and December of the year before. So uh, students have signed up to uh, accommodation contracts um, for an academic year, nine months in, uh, or so in advance. And uh, so, uh, you know, for many of uh, students now, plans are going to change quite radically. They don't know if they're going to go back to uh, in-person study um, or study at all, perhaps. Um, there was some suggestion that 30% had already signed up to a contract for next year uh, uh, in uh, some statistics that came out yesterday. And so for many students looking ahead, it's so not just those that are in uh, accommodation now and might want to, to leave where um, that's not uh, already possible. Uh, it's actually looking at what's going to happen next year and the contracts that uh, people have signed up um, so far in advance and yet have, have discovered that things have changed. And indeed, for NUS, we are really concerned that this model of doing things, um, even without coronavirus, is, is uh, disadvantaging students um, and as tenants and putting too much power in the hands of uh, landlords and letting agencies. And we think that, that this needs a, a complete change, uh, not just for this year and, and for this crisis, but for, uh, for for the benefit of students in the longer term. I mean, the, the one great area, and actually it'd be interesting to see how, how this is implemented, um, if, if, it, if it is indeed passed, is um, for those students entering to new accommodation contracts during the lifetime of the bill um, you know, they will be able to give 28 days notice um, if they are able to provide COVID related reasons for that but actually how we determine whether someone is uh, leaving the accommodation as a result of COVID uh, related reasons or actually just because they've changed their mind um, and that will make it quite difficult I think for um, halls of residence to model uh, impact actually because we, we just don't yet know what that legislation will look like in full So that's about it for this week Remember, to delve deeper into anything we discussed today, you'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to David, Rachel, Debbie, and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.